Well, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 17. This morning we're going to look at John chapter 17 and we're going to talk about in this New Year's Eve, uh, New Year's message, uh, just a concept that I would suggest for you to adopt as part of your New Year's resolution. It's very popular to uh, start again and to have a New Year's resolution. Everybody kind of loves New Year's. Uh, you know, the gyms uh, are flooded, so if you're a typical gym person, you won't get your treadmill back until like February or March. Uh, your equipment will be taken up until the resolutions fade out. If you're, uh, you know, some of those things kind of happen every year. It's a, it's a natural routine and cycle. Uh, but people do like a new year because they like a new start. They like a new beginning. Um, one of some of our favorite passages, Ecclesiastes 3, tells us that your mercies are what? Yeah, they're new every morning. Every single morning, they're brand new. And the Bible promised us in Jesus a new and a fresh start. And so some of you have New Year's resolutions already. And in a little while, I'm just going to pause the recording and allow you to kind of share some of those spiritual goals that you might have for this year that would encourage each other and what you want to accomplish, what you want to see in your relationship with the Lord this year. So be thinking about that. And I'll pause the recording and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, but... I would like to suggest for you a worthy spiritual goal for the year for 2018. And that goal for you is intimacy with Christ, a deeper sense of closeness. And let me sort of paint for you a picture of what that looks like. Early on, when I very uh, first became a believer, uh, I was given a book of stories about people's relationship with the Lord. And, and there was this one story that I remember from 1993 or so when a very poor woman with seven kids, uh, as she began to seek the Lord in poverty, uh, she had a habit of uh, when she ran out of food, she would send her kids into the yard and they would collect uh, greens from the yard, dandelion greens, and she would collect other kinds of, uh, you know, those little green onion shoots that anybody have those in your yard that come out. She would, her kids would go and collect anything they could in the yard and they would add it to the pot of boiling water and they would put all that together and make the best soup that she could come up with. And her kids overheard her in the story. I wish I could remember the author and the story better, but the kids would always remember how she would give thanks as she uh, would fill their bowls that, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you provide. I was just praying that there would be enough onions in the yard or there was enough dandelions in the yard that we could all be fed today. And you answered our prayer perfectly. And this would go on for months. And occasionally her kids would overhear her pray. It sure would be nice Lord, if we could have a little meat with our soup tonight or a little bread with our soup tonight. And the kids recounted over and over again how when that would happen, uh, mysteriously a grocery bag would appear on the porch. And occasionally it would be filled with food and canned goods and, and meat and other things. But it always revolved around her prayer and her intimacy with the Lord. And no matter what she got, no matter what she prayed for, no matter what she had there, she was grateful, and it seemed to um, be connected to her intimacy with God. And the story pointed to the fact that this woman 
had such an intimate relationship with God that from her children's perception, that every time she asked for something, it was as though Jesus were in the room with her and as though He would go and do for her exactly what she asked. It would be nice to have some meat with our dinner tonight. It would be nice to have some bread. It would be wonderful if we had some vegetables for the soup. And any time she would pray these prayers, it seemed to her children and to all those who knew her that she had this depth of intimacy with God. It's a simple story, but it inspired me as a new believer that one of the greatest things that you can strive for in your walk with God is that you have an intimate relationship with Him, that you have the kind of relationship with God whereby He speaks to you and you listen to Him and respond to Him, and that you have that sort of vibrant, life-giving relationship with God that actually develops over time, that actually develops into this thriving, growing relationship with God. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man named George Mueller, but in the autobiography of George Mueller, man who lived in the 19th century in England, uh, he began to uh, grow in an orphanage ministry. He would take kids off the streets, and as he would begin to um, take care of them, he, people would just start to give him things. And George Mueller was most known, if you ever pick up the autobiography of George Mueller, he's known most for his specific answers to prayers. He had journals, and he would write specific prayers down, and he would pray over them. And he was, uh, became convicted so many years into his uh, ministry with the orphans not to share any of his prayer requests, but to triple or quadruple his efforts in prayer. Some of the anecdotes from his autobiography include not having heat um, for 400 orphans, knowing that the coal stoves were going out, knowing that the boilers were going out, and waking up extra early, lighting candles in his dark room, and praying that God would provide just the right amount of coal to get them through the day. And at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock in the morning, somebody would come by with a delivery of extra coal that they had ordered uh, because of a delivery um, misunderstanding as they delivered too much coal and it happened to be just enough coal to get them through the day. And this man recorded thousands and thousands and thousands of very specific detailed prayers that no one else knew about that he would pray about and that God would answer in extremely specific ways. And when you hear stories like that, something within us says, I, I want to know God in that way. I want to know God in such a way that when He speaks to me, I hear Him. That when I speak to Him, not only does He hear me, but He responds to me. That when I pray about something, that I'm reading about it, and something in Scripture jumps off the page to me. You know, Seth is in nursery now, but he, he called me earlier this week and he said, the Lord really spoke to me about this Noah escape and this connection to the baptism story that he read about just before the intermission here. And it's that sort of language that I often notice is missing from believers' lives. I've had a conversation with a few people not related to our church, but just in our community and that have sought help from other churches. And as I visit with them, uh, there is a vast difference between one group of people and another group. One group of people that I'd been visiting with um, were nervous and worrisome and afraid of sort of what's happening in their life and completely absent from their vocabulary 
are things like, the Lord spoke to me. The Lord put it on my heart, in my prayer time, as I was fasting, in this passage, from this book. That vocabulary was completely missing from their experience. But an entirely different group of people facing similar struggles and difficulties, their language was completely the opposite. And the, the contrast was amazing. They would say things like, as I was fasting and praying, the Lord clearly gave me hope and strength and a word and a, and a confidence and a, a sense of peace about my struggles. What vocabulary do you use in describing your relationship with God? Has it been a long time since He spoke to you? Since you prayed and He spoke to you about something? Has it been a while? Is your vocabulary more like this one group that I mentioned or like this other group? Would you describe your relationship with God as a growing, thriving, intimate relationship with Him? In John chapter 15, we're going to get to chapter 17 in just a moment. But in John chapter 15, Jesus is giving this command. He's describing in the, the, this teaching leading up to the crucifixion in this last week of his life. He's talking to his disciples in the upper room and he's telling them all of these uh, incredible things. The, a real concentrated, focused block of Jesus' teaching, most important teachings to his disciples in the last week of his life. You know, John 13 through 17 includes that Five or six chapters includes that one block of teaching on this one period of just a few days. And in that teaching, in John 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 4, he says, abide in me. That is, remain in me, some of your verses may translate, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me or remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches, and whoever abides or remains in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do what? You can do nothing. There's a sense of connectedness that Jesus is describing with this vine language where a vine that is grafted into a tree that is growing receives the life and the nutrients and the, the vitality that that tree that it is grafted into provides. And you wouldn't expect a branch that is cut off to grow or to thrive or to have any life in it. And yet, if we don't grow in our intimacy or our relationship with God, we experience the same loss of life and vitality in our own lives. And so, let's look at John chapter 17, 3. And I want to suggest to you um, prayerfully that this become like a rudder for the ship of your life this year. So rudder is a very small thing. John 17, 3 is a very small verse. But the concept in it, I would love for you to adopt as a spiritual goal for this year if you don't already have one. And in this um, priestly prayer that Jesus gives in John chapter 17, it's one of the largest recorded prayers of Jesus, He gives a definition of eternal life. 
He gives a definition of what it means to have eternal life in heaven. And he says it very clearly in this way. Look at John 17.3. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's a long prayer. It's got a lot of things in it. But right up front, in the very beginning... Jesus gives us a picture of eternal life. And that is knowledge of God. Intimate knowledge of God. And so let's, let's break this idea down. It's very important. It's found all around Scripture. Uh, the word know is from the word gnosko in Greek. And it, it's a word that means experiential knowledge. It's a word that means, it's more than just book smarts. Have you ever known somebody who's just book smart? I'm not raising my hand because that's me. I'm saying, have you ever known somebody that's book smart? Not me. Some people are what we call street smart. That means they kind of understand uh, relationships and they understand uh, it's kind of the way things work uh, with a sense of common sense, while other people may sort of fall on the other extreme, that they may have a lot of book knowledge. Um, Jesus is not describing when he says, If they know you, he's not describing a book smart kind of way. He's describing an experiential knowledge of himself. Uh, It would be very similar um, if you take, for example, maybe one of your favorite um, actors or actresses or football players or somebody that you look up to and you say, you know, I know everything about this person. I know their real name, I know where they went to high school, I know where they went to college, I know all the significant statistics, I know all these things about them. That would describe this sort of knowledge that is not experiential, because you don't know what their voice sounds like when they maybe uh, are tired, or you don't know what their mannerisms are like uh, at certain points of the day, you don't, you don't know what they smell like. You don't have all this sort of intimate, experiential knowledge that they have of each other. I was talking to my friend Scott, and in his business, uh, he's got several employees that have worked with him for a couple of decades or more. And uh, one particular employee that he knows very well, uh, he was on the phone with him one morning, and this particular person could not uh, remember numbers all of a sudden, and was confused. And Instantly, because of Scott's working relationship with this person, he said, you need to hang up the phone right now and you need to call 911 immediately and tell them that you're confused about numbers and that you're not remembering things. And he, he had remarked how he was feeling confused. And so he hung up and he called. And Scott called his wife and told him to send an ambulance. And right away, Scott knew all these things, what to do immediately because of this relationship with this guy. And it turned out that it was a brain aneurysm that was affecting a part of his um, a part of his body. And, and so he, he knew him so well that he was able to quickly get help for him. That is the kind of experiential knowledge that Jesus is describing. That we would have such a close relationship with him that he speaks and he leads and he guides and he puts things on your heart and on your mind. This is the type of Christianity that thrives that is life-giving, that causes you to well up with emotion as you worship, that causes you to say, Lord Jesus, I could sing this song forever. Lord, I love this, uh, this scripture. I love this passage. I love this Bible verse. I love this time that we have to worship and that we have to sing. It's the kind of thing that you are more in love with Jesus today than you were last month and last year. 
And it is exactly the opposite kind of relationship with Jesus uh, that is described in sort of a cold, dead, religious environment where there is no life-giving message, where there is no life-giving relationship. That kind of intimacy is what I would desire for each of you to experience with God. And it is exactly that pivot point that many people fall away from the faith or grow deeper and press further into Christ. And if you're going in the wrong direction as it relates to this point, then it will determine your level of love and satisfaction in Christ. Eventually, if you continue on a course toward sort of knowledge-based Christianity, where you could know Hebrew words and Greek words and all sorts of nuances about Jewish culture, but, but your heart's not filled with love, you're filled with bitterness and anger or greed or jealousy or hatred, all of those things, you can be the smartest person in the room when it comes to Bible knowledge and be the meanest person ever. Or you could be somebody who has this thriving, intimate, close relationship with God and not have all that Bible knowledge and be a life-giving, grace-producing, Christ-reflecting person that everybody wants to be around. And you can develop that kind of relationship with God. You can, right now, listening to my voice, this is not something that is reserved for the holiest of holy people or for the most consecrated of consecrated people. This has nothing to do with your moral status. As a matter of fact, you look at some of the people that had the deepest uh, relationship with Jesus, those were people um, who were the most sinful people who found themselves at His feet, worshiping Him, loving Him, serving Him, walking with Him, growing with Him. These were the people who were closest to Christ, and their level of sinfulness did not deter the potential for their intimacy with God. So it has nothing to do with the fact that you might think yourself too great a sinner. In Christ there is forgiveness, and He deeply loves you. And He is willing to forgive you of those sins and to cleanse you and to invite you into this intimate, more intimate relationship with Him. This intimacy, let me give you a couple of ways that you can grow in intimacy with God. You can grow in intimacy with God in a few really key ways. The first one is is what's basically called a quiet time. And that's just basically a time that you get together, you set a period of time aside in a day, and you say, Lord, I want to know you more. And you pray, and you read your Bible, and it's all for the purpose of knowing Him more. It all has to do and revolves around this idea of growing in intimacy with Him. If you're reading and having a quiet time during the day, and it is so that you can grow in knowledge of God, that's good. It's not the same. If you're reading and having a quiet time every day so that you can um, so if you like sort of moral to-do lists and checkboxes, and that's kind of what your goal is, this is not going to re- re- uh, result in greater intimacy with God. If your goal is to be um, an effective tool in God's hand, a quiet time can do that. It can allow God to use you in some ways, but the desire of it is that you would grow in intimacy with Him, that you would have a relationship with Him that reflects His desire in the Garden of Eden, Right? 
when he created an Adam and Eve, uh, there was a sense of closeness with God that was his ideal. It was his goal that he dreamed up that we could have a deep fellowship with him. Imagine that fellowship that God had with Adam and Eve in the garden where everything about them was known to him and everything about them was uh, known to him. They were together walking and experiencing this relational togetherness. And if you look at how that was in the beginning when he set it up, and then you look at Revelation and how it will be uh, when we get into eternity, eternal life is, is that sense of being in his presence without anything coming between us. The sin that comes between us has now been broken and shattered away. And so that beginning and end goal of God is that we would have that fellowship with him. And a quiet time right now is that sort of training period. If you need a, a I, don't know, I don't even know what the thing's called, a dipstick, right? The thing you stick in your oil thing and you bring it out and you, it measures. Uh, if you need sort of a dipstick to measure your intimacy with God, tomorrow morning, open your Bible, put your phone and everything else away and begin to pray. And if you can make it for more than five minutes, you can see that you're sort of level of receptivity for intimacy with God is at that point. And the goal for it is that you could start your prayer when you wake up and say amen at the end of the day and have a running dialogue with God throughout the day where you speak to Him and He speaks to you. You see, when Paul told the Philippians to pray at all times, he didn't have sort of a a religious on your knees, hands clasped and eyes closed in a monastery prayer life imagined. He meant the kind of intimacy where you are walking and growing and spending time with Him throughout the day in the midst of your tasks and in the midst of your life. That sort of quiet time uh, allows you to grow in intimacy. A second thing that will contribute to your intimacy with God is having experiences with God. Having experiences with God. Where can you experience God most clearly? With His people. Jesus promised it, um, that where two or three are gathered, that I make myself known to them in a way that I didn't make myself known to them in a personal way. God promises to make Himself known to you as we gather in community for the purpose of growing with Him. This is why church attendance has to be a priority. Now, I say that sparingly because I, I don't want this to become a moral checklist. That you can take the things I'm saying and say, okay, I have to have a quiet time and I have to go to church every week. And you can take what I'm saying and miss the whole point of it. The point is not for me to have an attendance sheet that's full or seats that are full. That has nothing to do with it. I want you to understand that the goal of this, experiences with God, contribute to your intimacy with God. And your best chance to experience God is in a community of people who are all seeking to grow in intimacy with God. What would it look like if everyone left this room today and spent the next six days fasting and asking God to come and visit us and to come and make Himself known to us? What would it look like if we continued that pattern and all of us came together on a weekly basis with an expectation and with a daily habit of meeting with God, asking Him to meet with us, that when we come together in a worship gathering, there would be such a sense of intimacy and closeness with God that all of us would never want to leave this place. Experiencing God happens best in community. 
Sanctification, your growth in holiness, happens best in community. You can't apply three-fourths of the verses in Scripture in the New Testament that deal with the church, the one another's, unless you have one another. Unless you're in a group. You'll never grow outside of a group. And so these experiences with God happen in groups. A third way to experience intimacy with God outside of a quiet time, outside of corporate experiences with God, is through the simple act of obedience. When God puts something on your heart, you obey Him. I do a lot of premarital counseling. Uh, I've done, I think, uh, almost 30 weddings in uh, my 25-year history in, in ministry. And I always do, I require at least six sessions of two hours each of premarital counseling. And one of those sessions all revolves around relational intimacy with your wife or with your husband. And uh, that we sh- I show this diagram of, of a screw. And, and with every turn of the screw, there is a deepening of intimacy in that relationship where if there's an exchange between a husband and a wife uh, where um, he does a service act toward his wife, that is uh, deepening the love and the affection. Some books would call that an emotional deposit into the bank account, right? You want to have more deposits than withdrawals. And each time you do something that speaks the sort of love language of your spouse, whether it's something with respect or something words of affirmation or Uh, meaningful touch and all those things, you sort of, as it were, tighten that screw and it creates a reciprocal effect. If your husband does something for you, you want to do something for him. If you do something for him, he wants to do something for you. And, And as that happens, that sort of relational intimacy goes deeper and deeper. You see that word picture? Listen, the act of obedience with God operates almost exactly the same way. As he puts it on your heart to do something, say you have an issue of bitterness. You really hate somebody. <laughs> it may be somebody in this room, it may be somebody in your family, it may be somebody at your school, it may be somebody at your workplace, but feelings of bitterness, feelings of anger, feelings of jealousy, feelings of all these things come up, and, and you know that when their name is mentioned, something arises within you that is not necessarily uh, like the fruit of the Spirit, right? You know what I'm talking about, maybe. Um, <laughs> If that is you, and God says to you, hey, I want you to forgive that person. You know He's speaking to you. And you have an option at that point. I can either disobey God and walk away from Him, and that would screw outward your path to intimacy with God. Or you can say, as hard as it is, as much as I enjoy my hatred for this person, I'm going to obey you and I'm going to forgive them. And you... Obey Him. And when you do that, there's a deeper sense of intimacy with you and God that He's now able to tell you and to give you more instruction for life giving. Oh, good, you obeyed. Now I want you to give this to somebody. Now I want you to speak that word to somebody else that is discouraged. Now I want you to go and make a meal for somebody here. And as you do that, you see how you will develop an intimate relationship with God whereby He speaks and you respond in obedience and faithfulness and joy. Some of us never get to that point because many of us are so distracted that we're never able to follow those three sort of simple things. So that leads me to the last thing. There are three hindrances Scripture lists that will keep you from experiencing an intimate relationship with God. Flip over to Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, 
Jesus describes for the crowd a sower, and he's out sowing seeds, and, and as the sower, we don't live in this kind of uh, environment anymore, so I don't know, you may know what a sower is, kids, you may know, uh, but a guy would grab a bag of seed and he would walk, and in uh, Israel, they didn't have these huge fields that we have now, they had sort of terraced places on your property, and you would sort of sow into these small, what we would see as like a flower bed or a garden. And so the sower would go and he would sow. And, and when we were in Israel a couple of years ago, uh, we saw the hometown of Jesus in Nazareth, what, an example of what it would look like. And on somebody's small property, there would be these goat paths that would wind back and forth. And there would be these areas where they would grow things. There would be areas where they would have animals. And it was all very compact on a person's property or in a communal type property. And so when it describes this, when Jesus is describing a, a sower throwing seed, it says some would fall among rocks, some would fall among thorns, some would fall on the path, and some would fall on good soil. And so as he's describing this, it's really a small area, and he's just throwing seed, and it's easier just to cast it wide, but uh, it wouldn't necessarily grow everywhere he cast it. His disciples come to him later, and they say, well, why is, tell us, explain this to us. And he says, well, the, the seed is the word of God. It's the Bible, it's the message of the gospel, it's that seed that we want to see planted in people's lives. And the sower is the one who shares the word of God or shares the gospel. And there are four types of soil in this parable. The first type is the stony ground. That is a message like this that I'm preaching the Bible. Somebody who is a stony ground soil kind of person, they're not hearing it. Right? You're thinking about something this afternoon or about a work task or about a sport or something. You're thinking about something else, but not this. And this is... This message is falling on a hard, stony path. The Bible actually says that the birds of the air come down and they take that so that you'll never really, it'll never really penetrate your heart. It describes a second kind of soil, and that is uh, soil that falls among the rocks. And because it doesn't have a lot of depth, the seed falls in between the rocks and it grows up quickly, but as soon as the conditions change, that, that plant is gone. It's burned up and it goes away. Those two Seeds in those two soils describe unbelieving people. Those are not believers. But the second two, the last two, describe what happens when the seed falls on good soil. Just hang with me. This has a purpose. I know the lights are kind of low. It's kind of warm. Sometimes I get monotone. But just bear with me for like another half hour. Um, I'm just kidding. Maybe ten minutes. But as it falls on these last two types of soil, the fourth kind of soil is good soil. And the seed falls in the good soil and it grows up and it produces a harvest, like a lot of fruit. Jesus said 30, 60, 90 times what was sown is what is reaped. That's what we all want to be is good soil. Amen? Everybody in the room wants to be good soil. Nobody wants at the end of your days to look back on your life and say, man, every time I heard the word, I just hardened my heart, right? I just didn't want to hear it and, and I have nothing to show for my labors in Christ. But most of us fall into the category of the third kind of soil. And these are the hindrances to knowing Christ intimately and bearing fruit like we read in John chapter 13. John chapter 12. I'm sorry, John 15 we described remaining in Him and bearing fruit. So here let's describe the third kind of soil. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus describes the third kind of soil 
And in verse 14 he says, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are the ones who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked out by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. That is a picture of believers. The seed has gone into the soil, it has grown, it is um, sprouting, it is maturing, but as it is maturing, it's the garden around it is not cultivated, and, and the weeds are beginning to choke it. This is a picture of believers who are not bearing fruit, who are not growing in intimacy with God, and Jesus gives you three reasons. Now, they're very broad reasons, right? The first one is the cares. Does anybody have any cares, right? Do you have cares that keep you from intimacy with God? Well, yeah. Yeah, I have a care. I'm worried about my job stability. I'm worried about my my finances. I'm worried about my my relationship with my spouse or with my kids or with my parents. I'm worried about my career. Uh, I have all these concerns, and they plague me so much that I'm not investing time in listening and responding to God. I'm not investing time in listening to Jesus. I'm, I'm just so overwhelmed with the cares of life. You know the story of Mary and Martha. One is sitting at Jesus' feet listening to every word he says. Mary, right? And Martha's in the kitchen and she's scrambling and she's working and she's getting all this stuff ready and she's so overwhelmed with the cares of the situation that she she has God in her living room, right? I mean, Jesus is sitting in her living room. And she's worried about the stuff. And I mean, we relate to that, don't we? Yeah, we have cares. So Jesus broadly tells us that if you are so focused on things that don't matter, that it saps your intimacy with God. It is literally choking you. I played uh Dodgeball the other night. And man, you want to learn something about people. Uh, man, get them in a competitive environment. You start to see all sorts of personalities emerge. And, and uh, we had two teams, Ridgeline kind of put together informally two teams. It was fun. I'm still sore and, and all that. But, but as I was kind of watching this one guy from this other team, something in me just kind of rooted against him because he cared so much. Like he just, he cared so much. That he was so competitive, um, I, I just thought, this guy cares about something that means nothing. He cares, something about, cares so much about something that just absolutely means nothing. I'm not talking about anybody in the room, right? I'm talking about, I don't know if that's you, I don't know, but I'm not talking about you. But, but it's true, some of us just care so much about things that make no difference. I promise you when you're dying, you'll never say, I wish I watched more football. I just didn't get enough in. I just, it didn't, it, I didn't see enough. I didn't, I didn't work enough hours at my job. I didn't invest enough. Those are never the things that people mention on their deathbed. People do say, I wish I knew God. I wish I had peace with God. I wish I had invested more in my relationship. I wish I cared more about my church. I wish I cared more about the body of Christ and I wish I cared more about the state of my unbelieving friends and family. Those are the things you should care about. But unfortunately, the wrong cares creep in and it chokes you out. The second kind of thing that Jesus says will choke you out are the riches of life. 
the riches of life. And this could either be that you have riches or that you wish you had riches. <laughs> you could be so overwhelmingly consumed by the responsibilities that come with wealth, or you could be so overwhelmingly consumed with the fact that you don't have it that you're choked out in any sort of intimacy with God. If you've ever watched MMA, you see uh, there's a place where a guy can kind of jump on another guy's back, and it's called a rear, what? A rear naked choke, right? He'll just get him, and it's when he digs in, right? And he's able to kind of flex his neck up. This is just a violent image. Sorry, kids, but, but he'll just dig in, and he, he can choke sort of the air out of this guy if he has the right position. And riches are like a rear naked choke. They can, they can suffocate the life out of your relationship with God quicker than anything. If you're so consumed with making money, keeping money, spending money, buying things, not having things, wishing you had things, all of that can sap the life out of you. And the third broad category that Jesus says will choke the life out of you are the pleasures of life, where you're going to go on vacation, what sort of things you're going to have in your house, what sort of comforts you have, what sort of comforts your neighbor has, whether your car has heated seats or not, or if you could upgrade into this kind of vehicle. Those sort of pleasures of life issues can suck the relationship, the intimacy out of your relationship with God. So when we evaluate these three things that choke the life out of us, all of us struggle with at least one, oftentimes more than one. And if you've got a tornado of three cares, worries, riches of life sort of plaguing you right now, you can feel overwhelmed by a message like this. It can make you kind of want to walk out and say, well, I just give up. I don't want to take another step. I'm so overwhelmed by how I feel today. But let me just offer you a, a bit of hope if that's the way you feel right now, if you feel overwhelmed by these things. You can today start small, in developing an intimate relationship with God. And I can help you in a way that may be really effective. I don't know. It may not. But but if you feel so overwhelmed by past failures, if you feel guilty, if you feel tormented by the fact that you've started and stopped so many times that you don't want to start again, let me just remind you of how we started this message, that His mercies are what? New every morning. That when God looks at you, He doesn't see your failure from last night or from today, maybe this morning or the last week. That, that He's not looking down at you with a frown if you're in Christ, wishing that you were more. He looks at you as a father, a father who looks at a child who is taking their first steps. He looks at you as a father who celebrates the positives and that wants to help you pick up, pick up and move forward, take another step. And if your relationship with God feels so much more like one step forward, three steps backward, I just want you to know that God's not disappointed in that. He's not loving some future better version of yourself. He loves you today in Christ and wants to celebrate each new step you take as a loving, patient father. And so if your impression of God is that He's always mad at me, He's always disappointed in me. I'm not having a quiet time. I'm not growing. I'm not giving. I'm not serving. I'm not helping. I'm, I'm choked out. Listen, He views you as such a loving Father that it's His goal to kind of unwrap the hands around your throat that are choking you out and to give you life. 
Not in disappointment, but in mercy and in grace. And you can take these small steps that I've mentioned today and grow toward intimacy with God. It's my hope that that you would adopt that as a a goal for your new year, for 2018. That at the end of 2018, you can say, I'm really closer to Jesus than I was. I love Him more today than I did 364 days ago. It's my prayer that that would be uh, one of your prayer goals that you work toward this year. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. And I do pray for each person hearing my voice today that you would help them not to be choked out by the worries, the cares, and the riches of this life, but that you would give them grace and strength to take the small steps to grow in intimacy with you, to pray to you and to seek your face and to walk with you. And I pray, God, that you would do that um, this year, that they may increase in their, help them increase in their intimacy with you. Lord, you spoke through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And you said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not the rich man boast in his riches or the mighty man boast in his might, but let the one who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So Father, I pray that that would be each of our prayers this year, that we would boast in the fact that we know you intimately above all else. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.